If you'll turn your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 29, that's where we'll be. 2 Chronicles 29. No, no, no. 30, sorry. 2 Chronicles 30. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you'd help us to really absorb everything you have for us as we watch this beautiful revival in Israel. Um, we just thank you for it, for the example, the, the consistency of your heart, your grace, your mercy from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and um, that we'd understand our faith a little bit better. Our relationship with you is a little deeper, um, and that we'd enjoy you a little bit more and understand your heart for us. In Jesus' name, amen. As we continue with King Hezekiah and his beautiful reformation that he's trying to uh, do in Israel, trying to unify all the tribes and um, bring them together. Some will, some won't. There's always that choice. It's always an option. Um, but he does what he can do, you know. And uh, in this next section here today, he encourages everyone in the entire nation to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. Come on down like you used to, is what he's going to ask them and tell them. Come on down from uh, being separated from us and from Jerusalem. Come enjoy the temple and the Lord, and let's worship God together. And uh, it's a beautiful thing. Now, some take it and some don't, and um, I suppose that's our lesson. But can't worry about those that don't. It's, it's disappointing that they all don't take advantage of the opportunity or accept the invitation, um, but it's the ones that do, you know. Uh, Pastor Chuck always says, you can't, you can't preach to the empty seats, you know. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about the ones that are there. Don't worry about who's, who didn't show up or, or whatever. And of course, he has the same problem. Our God has the same problem. You'd think it, maybe it has something to do with the host or the king or the pastor or whatever, and it really doesn't. Um, the king of the universe, uh, when he prepares his table, the marriage supper, he invites and all decline until the point where he's saying, just go out to the highways and the byways and just grab anybody because the table's set, the food is there, it's ready to go. I just wish someone would partake of this wonderful love feast that I provided for everybody. Um, even God has the same problem with those that just won't accept his invitation. And you know he did it right. He said the right words. Um, and yet, people just don't want to. And so you'll see that here, but that really isn't the issue. The beauty of this chapter, I believe, is the remnant. It's always the remnant. There's always a remnant as well. There's always a group of people that want to worship the Lord. Sometimes as I read through history, as we go through it with the kids, or, you know, the dark ages and all these things, you're like, man, what a horrible time. Well, there was always a group of people that were very gracious and merciful and loving, always. They maybe not have been documented, but we know for a fact they were out there. It wasn't ever completely dark. It wasn't ever completely devoid or void of God and his grace and his mercy and his correct representation to this world. There was always somebody out there, and I hope you're encouraged by that. Because although we're in a big group here, and that's encouraging to know that there's this many people that on a Sunday morning want to worship the true and living God, that's exciting. For a lot of you, you were alone all week long, wherever you were. Um, alone in your faith, alone with your God. Um, and you're tough, and you're able to do it, and you're here, but it's nice to have fellowship and company. 
And we'll see that here. They rejoice. They're, it's, they're overjoyed to begin to worship God. In verse 1, And Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah, and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh, that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel. For the king and his leaders and all the assembly in Jerusalem had agreed to keep the Passover in the second month. It's supposed to be in the first month. For they could not keep it at the regular time because a sufficient number of priests had not consecrated themselves, nor had the people gathered together at Jerusalem. And the matter pleased the king and all the assembly. So they resolved to make a proclamation throughout all Israel, from Beersheba to Dan, that they should come to, the, to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem, since they had not done it for a long time in the prescribed manner. It's kind of a big deal that they're not doing it on the first. That's the way God said it. And you know, as I go through, um, we go through laws, we know that Jesus says not one jot, not one tittle shall be removed from the law, you know, until all is fulfilled and, and all. And we understand that. And so we can read those verses and say, okay, okay, we need to be focused on jots and tittles also, not just the big stuff. The jots and the tittles are important too. And it's true. But you'll notice here that given the circumstances, I mean, this isn't a jot and a tittle that they're avoiding here. This is a big deal. We're doing it a month later, not at the prescribed time. But it's okay, apparently. It's okay with God to say, yeah, yeah, you haven't done it in a long time. I'm just glad you're here, kind of thing. Now, it doesn't mean he always wants them to do it in the second month, and they can't just choose, I'm going to do it in the third month, maybe next year. Maybe next year we'll try the sixth. or No, they, they eventually get it back to where it's supposed to be. In their initial endeavor to begin to come back to God, in their brokenheartedness, in their humility, and they didn't have, through circumstances beyond their control, enough priests to fulfill all the things they needed to fulfill with everybody coming back, they said, let's, let's put it off till the second month. And it pleased everybody, including God. And so that was okay. And that gives us and helps us in the Old Testament with the New Testament, give us some context when he talks about these things, to, to take into consideration the whole counsel of God. Not, not just grab onto that jot and that tittle thing over there and say, therefore, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build a whole church around the jots and the tittles, you know? And we're going we're gonna to be the jot and tittle church, you know? Calvary jot and tittle, we could call ourselves, you know? <laughs> but when you read the whole counsel of God... You see the grace and your mercy. You begin to read and remember things like David who says, I know that you require sacrifice, but that's not what you want. What you want is a broken and contrite heart, and that's what I'm going to bring to you. I'll do the sacrifice, but I know that's not what you're interested in because the sacrifice without the broken and contrite heart is worthless. It's the broken and contrite part that matters, you see. And you can see that. This consistent character of God throughout the Old Testament he puts in the rules. He puts in the jots and the tills because we kind of need that stuff. We need marching orders. And they did. Without the Holy Spirit, we need the law. And the law was meant to bring people to the understanding of their sin. And so they're able to change this month and do this in not the prescribed manner. And it, it's okay. We're, we're coming back to God, you know. Then the runners, these are the people with these... Um, 
proclamations in their hand. They didn't have text or email, obviously. They'd run across all over, send them off on every road and run to every city and either leave a scroll or stand in the square and read it like a town crier kind of thing, and then they'd move on and the word would spread. Then the runners went throughout all Israel and Judah with the letters from the king and his leaders and spoke according to the command of the king. Children of Israel, here's what it said. Children of Israel, all Israel, return to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Notice that. Not Jacob. Now, Jacob and Israel are the same person. If you didn't know that, Jacob is deceiver. Um, but Israel is governed by God. And I just think it's interesting that he says, hey, all of you folks of Abraham, of Isaac, of those who are governed by God, then he will return uh, to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. And do not be like your fathers and your brethren who trespassed against the Lord God of their fathers, so that he gave them up to desolation, as you see. Now do not be, as the scripture that Aaron put up, now do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and enter his sanctuary, which uh, he has sanctified or set apart forever, and serve the Lord your God, that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brethren and your children will be treated with compassion by those who led them captive, so that they may come back to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn his face from you if you return to him. Now that's a bold promise. If we, if we turn back to God, he's going to give our relatives back to us. The, the captives are going to let them return I don't know that I have enough boldness to say that. I don't know that that's what's going to happen. I know that we're supposed to turn back to God regardless of what happens. makes no difference. He's worthy of our praise. We sang the song. But this is a leader who's willing to step out on a limb, put his neck on the line, mixing my metaphors here, but puts it all out there, and says, the reason we're in the predicament and you're in the predicament that we're in is because we do not worship the true and living God. And I know this for a fact, he's saying, because I know that if we return to the true and living God, that everything's going to go back to the way it was, because all this is because we turned our back on God. And it has, there are no other reasons for it other than that. So when we turn back to God, everything reverts back to the way it should be. That's a really bold statement, and that's faith. That's truly trusting in God and what he says. There's no hedging his bets here, you know. There's no waffling. James warns us about that. If, you, if you're asking, ask, ask without doubting, you know. You need to know what you're asking. You need to know who you're talking to. And this king, Hezekiah, he knows who he's talking to. I know that if we're not stiff-necked, and we're not like our fathers, and we yield ourselves, we give ourselves over to the Lord, and we begin to worship in his sanctuary, things will turn around. Things will turn around for us. That's a good promise. What a bold thing to say throughout all the nation. You can see why, well, he just doesn't care in the sense that he doesn't care what's going to come back at him from this. He's not trying to please everybody. He's not trying to be sensitive to everybody and where they are kind of thing. This is a very bold statement to make to an entire nation, everybody included. A very blanket statement. 
Our problem and the world's problem has always been sin. It's never been anything other than sin. The, the only reason we have problems in this world is because of sin. There would be no problems in the world if we didn't sin. That, that's obvious, right? You shouldn't have to say that out loud, but sometimes we forget that and we think that, well, maybe we can come up with another solution other than dealing with the sin. And perhaps we can come at it this way or go at it this way or maybe a little more money sometimes or um, maybe force people to make a little more effort. You know, maybe if we were a little more strict in this area, whatever it is, all that is, those are, those are, uh, those are half measures. Those may mitigate a little bit some of the problems. There are ways to feed the hungry. There are ways to stop people from sinning through fear and, you know, and handcuffs, you know. It helps a little. I think if we took off all that stuff, I think we'd have sin unbridled. But that's the best we can do is bridle sin. And what God wants to do is he wants to change people's hearts. He wants people saved. Every problem, every sin is a symptom of someone not having a relationship or a strong relationship with Jesus Christ. And there isn't any other God and there isn't any other religion that can fill that void. It's not, it's not possible. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir. You're all Christians. You're all here. Maybe some of you aren't that are watching online. Maybe some of you are and maybe didn't know this. But there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. There isn't. There is no other opportunity for us to right the wrongs in this world other than through Jesus Christ. I don't the best we can do with all the circumstances, the, all the sins that are out there, is to mitigate a little bit. That's it. It's when someone's heart gets changed, and they're born-again believers, spirit-filled, and they turn their life over to Christ, that they begin to sin lust from the inside out, and not just restrain their outward actions. That's religion. But a relationship with Jesus begins to actually change the heart to where that desire for sin is no longer there, the conviction is so strong that you don't. Even though your flesh is crying out, the Spirit is having victory in your life and you're choosing to follow after God. This is a true revival. What's happening here is a true revival. They have a king that is putting everything he can do into place, into practice, for the people of Israel, whoever wants to, can return to God. That's the only way we're going to stop any of the sins in our world. Telling people about Jesus is the most important thing you can do in this world. And that's all you can do. All you can do is testify. I can only tell people, and you can only tell people about Jesus Christ. He is the good news. There is no other. He is the solution to everyone's problems, their sins, because when the people get released from their sins, when they know that their relationship is right with God, we're about to witness this, the abundance of generosity, and I'm not just talking about financial, although that's a part of it, emotional, the joy, the unspeakable joy, the burden that's lifted, all of a sudden the entire society, at Jerusalem anyway, everybody who's worshiping just gets infinitely better. There's no more squabbles, there's no more fighting, there's no more arguing, we're we're worshiping the true and living God together. It's an amazing thing. It's beautiful. That's what has to happen. People 
have to be set free from their sins before they realize that they can have unspeakable joy, that they can be generous with their fellow man, that they can offer forgiveness when they know they've been forgiven. They can't give mercy unless they really re- receive the mercy from God. They can't offer grace without having it from God. And we expect people a lot of times to do all these things, even as unbelievers, when they've never experienced that before or have been set free from their burdens of sin. I have to tell people about Christ. Don't be stiff-necked, he says, as your fathers were. He insulted everybody's ancestors at that point. (laughs) Yield yourself. That is the key. Yield. Give yourself over to it. Now, so that's what they did. Let's return. Let's return to the Lord. So, verse 10, the runners passed from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh as far as Zebulun, but they laughed at them and mocked them. Nevertheless, some from Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. Also, the hand of God was on Judah to give them singleness of heart to obey the command of the king and the leaders and the word of the Lord. Those two things stuck out to me. Humbleness, they humbled themselves, and singleness of heart. We just went over that on Wednesday. James warned, you cannot be double-minded or double-hearted. I don't know if that's possible, but... You can't have it both ways, and nor should you. You need to be focused on the thing. The thing needs to be in your life. That's it. Tunnel vision to obey God. Timothy, here's what I want you to do. Paul says, I want you to take heed to yourself and to your doctrine, and those around you will get saved. (laughs) Simple. And you know what? Take heed to your doctrine and to yourself, and those around you that didn't want to get saved, they're not going to get saved. I have to let that happen. That's hard for me. I need to live my life. I need to live it as a testimony to God. Um, And those that want to get saved, they can see it, and God uses me in the sense that they receive, I can see what God's done in your life, and I want him to do that in my life too. They'll get saved. Those that just want to mock and laugh, they're not going to get saved. But that doesn't mean that I did it wrong. And sometimes I think that I'm not focused on what I need to be focused on. Maybe I'm focusing too much on myself and too much on my doctor. Maybe I need to focus on something else. Nope, nope. Keep that simple. Humble yourselves and be single of heart, singleness of heart. Just do those things. Just single-heartedness to obey the command of God. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. He talks to the young people first, and he picks it up halfway through five. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. God notices our humility. He notices our pride, but that's the biggest thing that God spoke to me out of this chapter was I want you to know this, or God wants you to know this from his word, from the cross references that I believe he gave me, is that he notices your humility. It doesn't go unnoticed. Sometimes you wonder, because a humble person doesn't exalt himself or herself. It doesn't make himself known that he's being humble. That's false humility. Look at me. You know, I'm so humble kind of thing. 
And so the humble person in their humility kind of goes, maybe I'm being a little too quiet about my humility. I don't know that God notices, but he notices your humility. You, that, that speaks so loudly to him. He, talk, he talks, speaks so highly of the humble. I, I can't work with the prideful. I've got to bring them low. But the humble, man, I could ask them to come way up to the head of the table with me. But I cannot ask the prideful to sit there because, oh, that's just detrimental to them. They need to go clear down. They've got to be humbled. And then when they're down there, maybe I can ask them back up again. You know, Humbling yourself before the Lord is the first and the most important step and needs to, and, and not even a step because you don't go up from there. You just, you got to stay there in that place of humility. Although there were many that laughed and mocked, there were some that humbled themselves and they came to Jerusalem. And those that did this, that's who we follow from here on out. The, the mockers and the laughers, well, they're all still at home laughing and mocking in their pride, thinking they're right and that the, their neighbors are foolish for going to Jerusalem. But here's what happens. Verse 13. Now many people, a very great assembly, gathered at Jerusalem to keep the feast of unleavened bread in the second month. They arose and took away the altars that were in Jerusalem. These are the false altars, okay, the false gods. And they took away all the incense altars and cast them into the brook Kidron. A lot of things get tossed in that brook Kidron. I mean, everything happens. That's where they burn the trash. Everything that's bad, it's like the garbage pit of Jerusalem. Well, it is the garbage pit of Jerusalem. Throw it in the garbage. Throw it in the trash. Then they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the second month. So they got the day right. They just had to do it in the second month because they weren't ready. The priests and the Levites were ashamed and sanctified themselves. Now, if you look in your center column reference, it says humbled themselves and set themselves apart. Some people have a hard time with the word ashamed. Don't. He doesn't mean it like God's taken away all my shame. Of course he has. But what he means is in humility. It's just like, I know who I am kind of thing. And it is unbelievable that I get to stand here and, and do this for you, with you, to you, God. It's amazing. You know, it's a, I'm ashamed that I'm standing here, but so grateful at the same time, you know? So understand what he means by that. So the priests and the Levites were ashamed and set themselves apart or sanctified themselves and brought the burnt offerings to the house of the Lord. They stood in their place. They're where they're supposed to be. According to their custom, according to the law of Moses, the man of God, the priest sprinkled the blood received from the hand of the Levites. For there were many in the assembly who had not set themselves apart or sanctified themselves. Therefore, the Levites had charge of the slaughter of the Passover lambs for everyone who was not clean to sanctify them to the Lord. For a multitude of the people, many from Ephraim and Manasseh and Issachar and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves. Yet they ate the Passover contrary to what is written. There it is. Again. They're not cleansed. There was a preparation that needed to take place before they showed up at Jerusalem. There's some things you do. You know? Things you got to get right before you show up. And you've got to get your sins offered. You know, there's just things you do. And then you offer up the Passover lamb, reminding ourselves of what God had done for us. But a lot of these folks, this is their first time back in years. It's been such a long time, he says at the beginning of this. Such a long time since we've done this. This is a real revival. This is a John the Baptist moment where people are coming down to the river 
we don't know where they've been or what, but we're pretty sure they didn't clean themselves before they got here. And they're not talking about a bath. But they're a rough crowd coming into this Jordan to get baptized, and yet here they are. And John looking rougher than all of them probably. Baptized each and every one of them that came, and so did Jesus then later on. And that's what's happening here. All these people are coming unclean. What should we do? We'll start offering up some sacrifices for them. Let's get them cleaned. Let's do it. Don't go get yourself fixed up before you go. Don't leave. Stay. I'm glad you're here. You know, you're in the right place. I'm glad you came all the way down. Nobody stood at the gates of Jerusalem and says, Ephraim, Manasseh, you know, get back and get right. And then come back and we'll finish this. But you guys have not done what, hey, we're not even doing this in the right month down here. Just come on in. Come on in. Because what all that matters here is the humility and the singleness of heart. Everything else is sort of, we got it, or God's got it. He's got, I'm, I'm very careful about what I'm saying here. I think you guys can feel that I'm being, I'm tempering my response or verbiage or whatever the right words are for this because I don't want us to get the idea that whatever we want to do is fine as long as we're sincere. Not what I'm saying at all. I want to be careful. This is a special moment. They're going to get back to the first of the month. They're going to get back to doing things right. But these folks haven't done it for so long. It's okay if they don't pray right. They don't say the right words. There is a mediator. There is an intercessor. There is someone in between that is translating, basically. I get it. I know, what you're, I know where you're coming from. I see your heart. That's what it means when we say God accepts you and receives you just like you are. But he doesn't keep us like we are. He receives us as we are. Wherever you are in your, in your walk on, or, or lack of walk with God, God will take you right now wherever you are. But make no mistake about it, he's going to change your heart and he's going to change you to be more, more holy, more beautiful, to walk in obedience to him. So although they had singleness of heart, to obey, they did not want to miss this Passover, so they came, regardless of the cleanliness of or the rituals that they forgot. So they stood in their place, and they did, the, did what they were supposed to do, and they, they began to offer up all these sacrifices. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, <laughs> this is a good king. May the good Lord provide atonement for everyone who prepares his heart to seek God. And the Lord God of his fathers, though he is not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary, and the Lord listened to Hezekiah and healed the people. I mean, that is New Testament stuff right there. And, all, and when I say that, it's never not New Testament stuff. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. He's the same one. Oh God, you know, would you do? Yeah, I got it. I'll clean them. I'll cleanse them. I hear you. I know your heart. I know your heart, Hezekiah, because you know my heart. And that's why this is all going to work great today. This is going to be great. God is so, how do I say this? Respect. I was going to say, he's so jacked for this. That's not the right word. He's so excited for this. He's so happy to see these people coming that they haven't been coming for a long time. He's so glad they're not coming on their own. They're coming as best they can. He's so excited about this. He listened to Hezekiah and healed the people. Now there's an intercessor. So uh, I got a cross reference for that. It's, it's kind of long. 
It's, it's, about, it's about the, um, the rich young ruler. And I don't want to read it all, but I'm going to give you the cross-reference so you can read it in its totality. Uh, Matthew 19, verses 16 through 30. Okay, Matthew 19, verses 16 through 30. If you don't know the story, the gist of it is this, a rich young ruler came and he asked Jesus, what must I do to be righteous or accepted in the kingdom of heaven? How do I go about this? And he says, well, you need to keep all the commandments. And he says, well, which one should I keep? Now, it's a, it's a, it's an arrogant question because at the end of it, it doesn't matter what Jesus told him. He says, well, I've done all that. So he didn't really need to ask, which of the commandments should I keep? He was going to say, I did them anyway. But he just wanted to say, why don't you name off a few? He's very prideful. He says, I've kept all these commandments, every one of them that Jesus named. And Jesus says, well, there's one thing you lack. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. And it says here, after he said that to him, let me read it to you. Um, If you want to be perfect, verse 21, go sell what you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when the young man heard that, he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. He couldn't do that. Now, that's a whole other Bible study. The point was, Jesus gave him a way to come to him and to follow him and gave him a command to do so. And he chose his pride and his wealth and decided, I'm going to go do it. And walked away from Christ at that point. When he had spent, apparently, his whole life trying to get close to God, when given the one thing left to do, it shows us that he wasn't doing any of those things for God, but only for himself to begin with. His motivation was all wrong. When he was given the last task to have a great relationship with God was to come follow Jesus after he'd gotten rid of everything that he owned. He said, "Mm, no. He went away sad because that was more important. And this preparation of the heart, uh, this, this young ruler could have followed through, but because of pride, because he didn't have singleness of mind, because he didn't, he wasn't humble He lost. He walked away. And these people didn't. These people came. These people did everything they were supposed to do and everything they could do. And the Lord listened to Hezekiah and he healed the people. I can do that. I can work with the humility. The pride was the most difficult thing for this youth to get rid of was his pride. That's all that had to happen. He could have kept all of his money. You just need to get rid of his pride, was what Jesus was trying to bring him down to. But he didn't. These people that are coming from all these miles away, even though they are laughed and mocked on their way out of their small towns or big towns or wherever, when they get to Jerusalem, there's all the people that are like-minded there. That's what I meant by this morning and Sunday mornings. You're mocked at church or mocked at work, you're mocked at school, you're mocked wherever you're wherever you go for whatever you believe. And when you get here, it's like, oh, there it is. There's a reason. That's why. You had to walk through all of that to get here. These people had to walk through all of that to get here. So the children of Israel, verse 21, who were present at Jerusalem, kept the feast of the unleavened bread seven days with great gladness. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day and night, singing to the Lord, accompanied by loud instruments. And Hezekiah gave encouragement to all the Levites who taught the good knowledge of the Lord. And they ate throughout the 
feast seven days offering peace offerings and making confessions to the Lord God of their fathers. Everybody's just, everybody's coming to the altar, you know? We get that. We know what that means, right? That's what's happening here. Come to the altar. You know, and here they come. They're kneeling. You know, you can just kind of see them all. And it's like a, it's like a big, uh, oh, not a revival for sure, but like a, like a conference kind of thing. There's some guys teaching over here, and there's some guys singing over here, and, and they're, they're all eating. Constantly we eat. So it's part of it. So uh, they're eating, and they're, they're teaching over here, and they're singing songs over here, and they're offering up peace offerings, and they're making their confessions to God, leaving their whatever it is on the altar of God, you know. It's, it's revival, the hearts, it's just, and they're with great gladness. This is amazing, you know, amazing. Then the whole assembly agreed to keep the feast another seven days. I don't want to go home. Let's not go home. <laughs> we call those mountaintop experiences. You know, you go to a conference, you're like, do we really have to go back to work on Monday, you know? This has been a really good weekend or a really good week or however long the conference lasted. You know, do I really have to go back to that? Yeah, everybody's got to come down the mountain and be Christ to those around them. And I'd rather not. Can we stay another seven days, you know? Let's keep it another seven days with gladness. For Hezekiah, king of Judah, gave to the assembly a thousand bulls and seven thousand sheep. And the leaders gave to the assembly a thousand bulls and ten thousand sheep. And a great number of priests sanctified themselves, set themselves apart. The whole assembly of Judah rejoiced. Help me circle that. How many times is he this with great joy, rejoiced, with gladness, with, I mean, it's just when you have your sins forgiven and you're right with God and you're doing for, in your, in your, these guys, I guarantee it, they're at the altar going, why did I wait this long to come here? This is so beautiful. This is so freeing. I feel so light, you know? What took me so long? Why did I reject? A, oh, I had this excuse or I had that reason for not doing it or whatever it may be. Oh, I'm so glad I'm here. Let's stay, you know? The whole assembly of Judah rejoiced. Also the priests and the Levites, all the assembly that came from Israel, the sojourners who came from the land of Israel and those who dwelt in Judah. So there was great joy in Jerusalem. There it is again. For since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. I don't know how many times I've read this, but I don't ever remember reading it like this. I don't know what it is. I didn't know it said that this was the greatest time since Solomon, you know? That all those kings in between, although they did kind of good in the sight of the Lord and they were kind of close, nothing was like this. This is amazing revival taking place. Regardless of those that aren't there, who cares? I mean, we care. We, we wish they were, but they're not. Everybody that came is just overjoyed. And Jerusalem's doing what it's supposed to be doing, praising the Lord and giving him glory and honor. And everybody there is doing it. It's an amazing thing. Um, in Romans chapter 5, uh, let's see, yeah, verses 19 through 21. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. 
So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I use that cross-reference because there's a lot of sin in Jerusalem right now, but it's being laid at the altar. And although they were there for seven days doing everything they're supposed to do, laying their sins on the altar and offering up sacrifices for them, it wasn't enough. And they just kept going. We need another seven days because I want to go deeper. There's more things I want to lay on the altar. We need to extend this. And the king's like, hey, yeah, let's bring out more blood. Let's bring out more blood. That's what that means. When you offer up these, these cattle and you offer up the, the sheep, you're making sure that everything that's being laid at the altar can be handled and taken care of. Yeah, yeah. But that was one of the drawbacks of the Old Testament. It's like, I don't have a sheep. Well, keep your sin then. Oh, oh. You'd have to walk away with the guilt and shame because you, you didn't have the offering for it because that's symbolic of Jesus Christ. You can't come to the altar of God without the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He cannot forgive you your sins without the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, without the blood. So that picture's there. And so these guys are like, I got more stuff to lay down, but I'm fresh out of sheep, you know? Bring in the herds. And the beauty is in, in the New Testament with Christ, it, it, that's why I read that, was where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. The blood of Jesus continually covers. You can't exhaust the mercy and the grace that God has for us. My sin. I got some more sin. Can you handle more sin? Bring it. You know, okay, I'm going to keep dumping my sin, God. Bring it all. I got enough blood for all of it. All of it. What a joy. Let's last seven more days. All right. Ephesians 1, seven. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And they're rich and deep. It's inexhaustible. His mercies are new every morning. His grace is it's forever. He separates our sins from us as far as the east is from the west, which is infinite. They never meet. It's a beautiful thing. And that's where they are. There's nothing like having your sin forgiven and knowing it, you know. Verse 27, Then the priests, the Levites, arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came up, to his holy dwelling place in heaven. And he heard all of it. Jesus and God was right there with them all. I heard every one of you guys. I saw all of your humility. I saw that long journey. I saw the sacrifices. I saw the blood. I saw the confessions. I heard it all. I'm with you, you know? What a joy. And that's where we get to leave off. That's a good leaving off point, isn't it, today? I like that. Um, I like it. I had one more cross-reference. I don't know if I should read it or not. Oh, yeah, let's read it. Ezra 9.8. It's a good conclusion. And now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. What a great verse, huh? Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word and the encouragement that you brought us. Um, we're just blessed to be here this morning. Some of us had to walk through some trials and some difficulties and some barriers and, um, and things to get here. Uh, some of our flesh might have wanted to get in the way, and, but we went through it all, and we're here, and we're thankful for that. And we're overjoyed to be in your presence. We're overjoyed to be in a place where you've met us with your word, by your Holy Spirit, taught us and encouraged us, and uh, we're just, like throughout the whole chapter, we, we rejoice. 
We're overjoyed. So thank you for that. Thank you for that. And we pray that we're a blessing to you. Help us to go out with this joy, with this knowledge, with this understanding of who you are, and to, uh, to testify of how good you are to this whole, this whole world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a good rest of the week, guys. If you need prayer before you go, please come on up. Glad to pray with you.